Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss, and that came to me through my 30-year journey with my mother's dementia. For those of you that are new to our show, I just want to give you a brief introduction to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Our goal here is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and their caregivers, empowering them all to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Our channel expert living with Alzheimer's is Rick Phelps, and I never know if Rick's going to join the show or not, so if he does, I will pull him in. If you're not familiar with Rick, I highly encourage you to check out his group on Facebook called Memory People. Uh, He created this. It's got about 1,500 people on it right now. It's a closed group, and it's for people with early memory loss, their caregivers, both professional and family, as well as advocates. And by a closed group, that just means all the conversations will not pop up on your personal uh, Facebook page. Um, There's lots of subgroups within it, and it's just a nice place to really be able to chat and find support um, with peers going through kind of the same journey there. I also want to point out on our homepage, you can find links to contact both myself and Rick. So please feel free to do that. We would love to talk to you. And um, we'd love you to join us in being advocates on steroids for Alzheimer's disease and dementia by speaking out and just giving voice so others can learn what it's truly like. Um, We've got to kind of get out of the closet with this um, if we're going to deal with it. On today's show, I've got two great um, guests with us, um, and you can join our conversation by um, using the chat box if you are on your computer, or you can call in to the number, which is 714 Three six four four seven five seven. That's seven one four three six four four seven five seven. And when you call in, if you want to ask a question or make a comment, just push one, and that will get you into my queue, so I know that you are there. And we would we would absolutely love to hear from you. Our first guest today is um, Dr. Craig Patel. And he is a concierge internal medicine um, physician in Chicago. He's been in private practice for 12 years, and he completed his internal medicine residency in Northwestern Medical Center at St. Joe's Hospital in Chicago. Um, After noticing the lack of time given to patients regarding their complex medical conditions and the family dynamics, Dr. Patel took an interest in not only helping the patient, but those around the patient, empowering a teamwork approach um, of multiple disciplines. He feels this provides a better chance of maximizing opportunities for the patient to improve and have a better quality of life. Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia are complex, and there is no cookie-cutter treatment. Um, It requires a lot of detailed knowledge of both the patient, the family dynamics, social structure, and the role of each team member. Um, 
Dr. Patel, I, I just I, I want to welcome you to the show. Um, how are you doing today? Good, Lori. Thanks for having me this morning. Well, thank you for taking the time. I, I loved in your bio how you really talked about this team approach because I I personally have seen that in my own family dynamics of uh, how that wasn't addressed early on. You know, and we've been on this journey for 30 years with my mom, and it is critical because that social element plays such a big role in all of our lives. And so I think that that is really a neat, neat aspect. Can you tell us, um, before we kind of jump into detail about your company and, and the different things you're doing, can you just share with our audience, have you had a personal connection to Alzheimer's or dementia, family members or friends, or is this just something that you saw um, as a physician and wanted to make a difference? Well, uh, I think um, definitely my my personal uh, moment was was with my grandparents, uh, particularly my grandfather, who uh, passed away recently uh, a couple of years back. Um, he, he lived in India for all of his life, uh, visiting the United States back and forth uh, to visit my parents and uh, uh, the grandchildren. But uh, the last uh, five, ten years, uh, it was it was clearly evident that um, his ability to communicate um, agitation, um, uh, the ability to perform uh, the normal tasks uh, that we all sometimes take for granted, were diminishing. And um, I don't think I have a uh, necessarily a unique story compared to anyone else out there. But once you've once you've uh, experienced uh, a type of situation where there's Alzheimer's uh, or any other type of uh, dementia uh, related to stroke or senility, these type of things, um, it, it definitely heightens your awareness of what uh, yourself went through, what we went through as a family, uh, appreciating what maybe other families go through as well. So my, my personal uh, experience was my, my grandfather. Okay, well, great. Thank you for sharing that that with us. Um, now, you own um, Hansa Medical Group, is that correct? I do, yes. Okay. It's a concierge medical practice in Chicago. Okay. And can you tell us what do you, what do you mean by it? That word concierge gets thrown out a lot. So, um, you know, typically it means, uh, you know, good support services, you know, people at your beck and call. Can you tell us um, what your definition of concierge is and how that plays into your medical group? Absolutely. Concierge, in my opinion, is more of a accessibility and uh, delivery as opposed to the quality of health care. The quality of health care that we we provide is, is uh, going to be uh, similar to a, a lot of doctors, but the difference is uh, the availability and that extra mile that we're going to go for the patients. Um, any doctor can write a uh, prescription for a patient, but it's perhaps helping them get the prescription from the pharmacy. Um, in our practice, we visit uh, our patients in their home. So we are 99% home visits for our patients, which I think is has been a, a very valuable uh, aspect of our practice for those that are debilitated or rely on loved ones to take them to the doctor, uh, we're bringing the, the physician to the patient. So it's it's a little bit of a going above and beyond, and it's definitely a generic term like you mentioned, um, 
but in my practice in particular and for me it's it's the providing the extra added uh touches to the practice like the home visits um meeting our patients in the emergency room during an emergency situation uh, speaking with the emergency doctor so that things can be expeditedly handled for our patients. Well, I think that that's wonderful. I know with my mom, you know, she's now in a in a nursing home, and that that made such a difference from when we used to take her out of the nursing home and just bring her to the doctor. She would just get so antsy and so uncomfortable, and what's wrong with me? And and all of this worry, and so now, you know, the doctor comes to the nursing home, but it would have been nice even when she was at home, um, you know, prior to to have that service, and there wasn't anything, you know, at that time. So I, I can see where that could be really, really helpful, especially with someone with, with dementia. Um, can you tell us, um, you know, how how you can see it help um patients maybe share a personal story with someone with dementia and how it's helped not only the patient but the family and everybody work as a team together? Sure. I mean, one classic story that comes to mind is uh, here in Chicago, as you know, it's a very widespread uh, region with multiple suburbs, and um, we had a couple where the uh, the um, the father or the husband was approximately 80 years old, I believe, and the wife was 78. Uh, the wife uh, did not have any uh, health issues, but the uh, father uh, had Alzheimer's. The problem with that situation was the son that was living in the area lived approximately 45 miles away in another suburb. And he was working, uh, providing for his family. He had two uh, teenagers, uh, a wife uh, that was working as well. And oftentimes he was relegated to drive all the way through Chicago, 45 miles, which took him sometimes an hour and a half, to get to his parents to take them to a 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning appointment. Mm-hmm. And so they learned about our practice and we, how we did the home visits and uh, immediately signed on with us. We started providing the home visits. We would also do a conference call while we were in the patient's home, in their parents' home, with the son or daughter, with the permission of the parents, of course, um, so that they could feel like they were there, number one. They would feel like um, they were part of the team in helping their parents. So when when we would leave... We would say, okay, these are the things that we're going to do this week for the activities of daily living. When you do come and visit your parents, let's say on the weekend, I want you to check on these things. Um, So they felt like, number one, they were part of the appointment um, when they could. Even if they couldn't be part of the appointment, we would call them and have a good discussion with them afterwards, uh, letting them know this is what we've done, this is what we're finding, these are the risks, some problems at the house, um, some new issues that have come up. Uh, and this is kind of a game plan. So I think the family is part of the team, uh, definitely, uh, along with the other ancillary people uh, involved in a patient's care, whether it's physical therapy, a social worker, dietitian. Um, uh, the ancillary staff also gets involved when appropriate. But that one example comes to mind because it saved them so much time, effort, uh, lost days from work, uh, gas money, um 
not to mention just the stress and aggravation of getting through Chicago during rush hour. Um, we really allevi alleviated a lot of uh, pressure from that uh, young family in caring for their um, uh, aging parents. Oh, I can I can imagine because you don't necessarily have to be there in person, but you want to be in the loop um, because sometimes you have insights or sometimes you hear things, um, you know, to make comment on it. It just speeds up the process and makes it a much more solid plan. Um, for people, and I think when everyone can be involved like that, um, it just eases not only the minds but the hearts um, in terms of working together. How have you found patients responding um, to the house calls? Um, is that something that they are enjoying better, or um, do you get any resistance there? I, I would think that they would like it, but... Yeah, we've had a range of uh, feedback, uh, everything from uh, one person that was completely uncomfortable because they were so ingrained in being at the doctor's office. Uh, but out of the hundreds of patients that we've treated over the years, that was one case that I, I remember uh, vividly that they did not want to be seen in their home. Otherwise, everyone loves to have a, uh, a physician or somebody uh, come to their home uh, they're not waiting in a sterile doctor's office uh, waiting room. They are not dealing with an office staff um, that may be keeping them waiting in the waiting room for 30 minutes. Then they're waiting in an exam room for 30 minutes, uh, only to be seen for maybe five or ten minutes. And so it becomes very aggravating and irritating the old-fashioned way. And we've eliminated some of those hassles and um, issues. So you go about your normal day. You know the doctor is going to be there between 11 and 11.15, so to speak. And... Um, uh, get your appointment done that way. So it's been yeah, it's been well, well receptive. Uh, I'd say ninety nine percent of the time. Okay. Well, and I just think too. Every time I go to the doctor, I think I'm going to get sick because I'm around everyone else who is sick. And, and sure. so when you're just doing a follow up appointment, I would think that that kind of cuts down on on those possibilities as well. Plus, just the time the time saving and. Um, I know personally. I mean, I would, I would love that. Now, how, how do you deal with, you know, if if tests and things need to be done, and um, how does all of that work then? Well, we coordinate with the family or whoever's involved in the patient's care, whether it's a uh, driver. We have some people here that uh, actually have family of uh, uh, significant wealth, and they they have drivers or they have uh, a staff of people that can help them, and we involve them in our our plan, uh, uh, our, our medical plan, so that uh, it makes sense for them to get over to the hospital for blood work or an X-ray um, or their repeat CAT scan or MRI, or um, maybe they need to see the neurologist, and we coordinate that care according to the family schedule, but also what um, uh, ancillary uh, staff we have to work with. So I help make the appointments. Let's say if with a specialist that they need to go see and I coordinate that appointment according to when the family can take them to that appointment. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. Um, do you ever have um, people, because I know that there are some services nowadays where they can come to the house to do blood work and stuff. Do you ever um, use that type of service as well, or do you typically do that at the office? 
No, we, we, we have used that and implemented that um, uh, through home care agencies, home health agencies, uh, but a lot of that has to do with what the patient has already used, Medicare guidelines, why we're doing the blood draw, um, and these type of things. So those things across the board, it's not uh, provided uh, because it, it's, a lot of it has to do with what insurance will cover, what their Medicare and secondary plan is, uh, and those type of things. Whenever we can do that, uh, we absolutely implement that so we can kind of continue with them not necessarily having to uh, go out for a blood draw. Um, okay. So, so we try to do that as frequently as possible. Okay, sounds good. Now, um, you have two clinics, is that correct? We have a um, we have a clinic uh, in Chicago, and um, the one one clinic is a uh, clinic kind of like what you would envision a uh, doctor's office, and we have mm-hmm. that primarily for those rare occurrences where someone does not want to be seen at the home, or they may ask us to do a favor and see one of their family members that's not a member of the practice, but just see someone one time for a cold or something like that, and they want to be seen in the office, we'll, we'll do that for them. Um, and also small procedures like maybe removing a small mole or a skin tag or something like that. We're not going to do anything like that in someone's living room. That'll be uh, provided for at the at the clinic setting. Okay. Okay. Well, that that makes perfect sense on that. Um, now, how does it work? Um, so, uh, so, excuse me, I... I Missed my question here. So, was it that you have two clinics, or is it just one clinic? Because I thought I saw two. Oh, there, there's an administrative office in downtown Chicago. So that's not a clinic. It's uh, the one okay. clinic that we have is in the northern part of Chicago. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And um, and as far as numbers go, I mean, one of I guess the concerns that I would have. Um, would be, uh, you know, how do I know that I'll have service? Because how do you handle all of this unique and it's much more intense care, you know? Um, it's more compassionate, it sounds like, as well. But how would I know that um, you're not going to take on too many clients? Um, Absolutely. There's be somebody there that's, a great, that's a great question, and we get that asked um, pretty much every time that anyone signs on. And when we started the the practice, we did a lot of uh, research. Uh, we actually hired a consulting firm at the beginning when we set up the business plan. And one of the big questions was, what's the geographical location that we're going to provide a service to? Because obviously, just like that family driving 45 minutes, it would be difficult for us to get somewhere if it was 45 mm-hmm. to 50 minutes away. So what we've done is we've narrowed down the geography location uh, to um, an area that is serviceable and also limited the number of patients in the practice uh, to uh, no more than 200. Okay, okay. And then um, is it is it just yourself or is it other doctors or, um, you know? There are two physicians, myself and okay. uh, the other physician as well. Uh, the other physician actually happens to be my wife. So it is kind of a in-home uh, type of uh, consideration. We're able to um, uh, conspire as a great team. She does a lot of the hospital work. Uh, the hospital, there's two major hospitals that we uh, see patients in uh, near us and near the clinic. But we have affiliations in all the different hospitals uh, in the in the Chicagoland area. Um, so she does a lot of the hospital work, and I do primarily the home visits. Okay, 
Okay. And um, is this like a 24-7, so if there's a medical emergency, um, you're you're up and out of bed and, and at it um, and running over to the house? Or, you know, how does it, how much service, I guess, is there or flexibility maybe is a better way to put it? Well, it is 24-7. We are on call for our patients uh, around the clock. Um, there's really no day that's truly off. If I have to be traveling for a meeting or something like that or a CME course, uh, then the, then everything goes on the other physician, my wife, um, and vice versa. Um, very occasionally, if we have to both be somewhere or we cannot uh, be available, then we do have uh, uh, two partner physicians that will help us in those insta- instances. Okay, wonderful. And do you do a lot of, um, you know, Skyping with family or, you know, phone calls or emails? What's kind of the preferred um, mode of communication? Uh, number one probably is email. Okay. Uh, number number two, and, and the reason for that is we're primarily dealing with uh, young professionals that are in their anywhere from 30 to 50 years of age, Um uh, they're working, working hard to provide for their family, and it's their parents that we're primarily taking care of. So number one, I would say, is email. Number two would be phone. The Skyping, uh, not so much. We've done it a few times from uh, a patient's home so that their uh, kids could see them and I could show them something particular that I wanted them to see in the home. Uh, but that's that's typically has been um, not that frequently because kind of telling them the summary of what has been done is is very easily done on email and phone. Well, and when you're close, you know, proximity-wise too, um that would make a make a difference there, I would think as well where, you know, Skype wouldn't be as relevant versus if you've got people um, you know, all over the place and and then just to be able to again to have the documentation, I I would imagine is important too um going back and forth. Have you found or um ever suggested any type of like family contact system for people to keep up communications or you know logging systems for transitions and if things are changing or is that just kind of you know jot it down and let us know how things um, are progressing? We we typically have a contact person. It's either the the son or daughter um of of the uh patient and then if there's multiple other family members or siblings or or what have you uh that that contact person or that particular sibling will um relay everything to the rest of the family um we do occasionally have a family meeting where there'll be multiple people on a conference call uh because all siblings want to be part of the meeting uh, similar to a family meeting that occurs in a hospital setting, um, but we'll do it by phone. Uh, sometimes, occasionally, if the family is all within the region, we'll all get together uh, at a designated point um, on a particular day and have a, a good roundtable meeting and discussion on uh, the future and the plans of how they want to handle care for their uh, parents. Okay. Okay. Well, that that makes sense. Um now, one of the things you had uh we had talked about offline was you know how to configure kind of a ADL assessment and family stresses. Can you maybe tell people what ADL stands for? Um I probably should have done that myself and then 
family stresses. How how do you assess that? Sure. Well, ADL stands for Activities of Daily Living, um, which is a broad term uh, for standard things that we, again, probably take for granted if we don't have a chronic ailment, um, such as getting dressed in the morning, being able to uh, properly uh, uh, commandeer good hygiene, uh, can you take a bath or a shower, uh, brush your hair, brush your teeth, um, put your clothes on, uh, prepare breakfast, um, uh, sit down and have breakfast, clean up after yourself. Um, these are the, the standard things of, uh, of activities of daily living that we all probably go through in a, in a flash, uh, but for someone with Alzheimer's or someone with a chronic ailment like a stroke with a debilitation, physical debilitation or mental debilitation, uh, would find it difficult to, to do. Um, uh, our biggest way of determining the activities of daily living uh, aspect of a patient is observation. And the reason we can do this is because we can visit them in their home. And so we'll sometimes go in at 7, 8 o'clock in the morning if that's when they're getting up typically, and we'll spend a couple of hours with them, uh, watching them, helping them through uh, discussing with them uh, or their family members who's around, if, if available, on, on what they're not able to do or what they are able to do. But our observation tells us 99% of the story. Um, and from that, we can gauge how we're going to support them, what we can do differently, um, social workers, physical therapy people, if they need to come in, uh, a visiting nurse, uh, maybe just a caregiver. Um, so that uh, they can get dressed in the morning and these type of things. We also help assess this in a very detailed way, produce a report out to the family uh, so they can look at that um, because maybe it could be a cost issue. Maybe they are able to afford a caregiver for only a few hours of the day. Uh, let's maximize that caregiver for the few hours that they're going to be there. What are the particular hours of the days that they will need a caregiver? Um, all these things um, we, we take into consideration so we can maximize uh, the team approach. Um, and not to mention, we don't want to have someone come there when the timing is wrong or when they don't need support. So all these things go into consideration. But to answer your question, the number one way that we determine the ADLs uh, is by straight observation. Okay. Well, and it, it's just so refreshing to hear that, you know, you'll come early in the morning and, and watch them in action because, you know, so many times I know even sitting in the doctor's office myself, we would be talking and, you know, my mom had great social skills and she could cover a lot of things. And she would, you know, look all pulled together, but that's because I helped pull her together as far as, you know, grooming and things like that. And so sure. a, a, the disease can be very deceiving. Um, and we as as caregivers and care partners, you know, get wrapped up in kind of that deceit too because it's a, you know, it's a dignity thing and, you know, making sure people, you know, fit in and um, things are done respectfully. And so there's there's kind of this, like, hidden door thing and you have to really listen and look for the squeaky hinge. Um right. you know, or or have good communications with family or, you know, friends um or, you know, employees who are actually around that person. But I would imagine um in order to communicate with families you have to have powers of attorney and all of those types of things to authorize um communications. That's pretty Pretty standard in the yeah, um, it is. 
Now, I know I know our listeners are probably dying to uh, to uh, ask, what does something like this cost, and, and how is it structured? Is it private pay only, or is it covered by insurance? Um, can you can you give us a little detail there? Absolutely. So, the concierge business model uh, for patients uh, it, it's it's not new, number one, but uh, definitely the, the home visits and these type of things are uh, a little bit more unique of a niche. And what we do is we, we charge a fee for the year to be part of the um, uh, practice. And the reason we do this is twofold. Number one, a typical doctor's office will have, let's say, three to 4,000 active charts. We're mm-hmm. whittling down those active charts to 200. So to offset the cost or, or the revenue lost, we have to make up that from some other place to cover our overhead, and that comes from the retainer. The retainer typically starts around uh, $2,500 for the year and varies according to what the needs are of that patient. So I, I may I have one family that uh, has um, uh, working parents, a uh, debilitated um son that's about 25 years old and the grandparents living also with them. So there's actually um, six covered lives uh, with three three lives uh, being uh, fairly complex um, medical conditions. The, the two grandparents having uh, multiple comorbid conditions and the one um, handicapped uh, son. So their retainer is going to be different than someone that just uh, is... Um, having high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and um, needs me to see them once or twice a year. Um, We're still available for all our patients uh, 24-7, but the amount of uh, time and effort that goes into uh, that one family that I described will be different than uh, the the other uh, scenario. So we we initially had started the practice with uh, just kind of flat rates, and obviously we we learned very quickly that that's not going to work uh, because uh, certain families required a tremendous amount of time while others did not, and it just wasn't fair to those that did not need that we were charging the same amount. Okay, and, and family dynamics are so interesting in terms of how efficient our families can be or not. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we, we try not to get bogged down with that. We, tr- we truly try to go by... Um, uh, what the comorbid conditions are, and gauge from that how much amount of time and effort. Um, and, and, and all of this is kind of a hypothesis or a prediction. Nobody can predict how many times someone's going to get admitted to the hospital or is hospice going to end up being involved or if something else is going to happen. There's no way to completely have that crystal ball. And so uh, we try to be very fair about what we're going to charge to the families uh, in, with respect of uh, how much they will need us. The one thing about the retainer, unfortunately, is it's not covered by insurance. So that portion is out of pocket. But if you take that example that I told you earlier about the um, uh, family coming 45 minutes to drive their uh, loved ones to or their parents to the uh, doctor's office, the amount of time, effort, uh, job loss, uh, revenue loss from their job, these different things was way more than what we were charging them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in that in that niche in that niche situation, it made complete financial sense 
for them to pay for this service as opposed to them him losing a commission-based uh, day of, of work. So yeah. oh, def um, Definitely, I can see that. Have you found any resistance from other doctors or geriatric managers for the services that you provide, or, or do they think it's pretty neat? None whatsoever. Uh, the, once the retainer is explained and uh, um, and why we do it, number one, uh, number two, from a financial comparison of what might be lost out there from just uh, what I just explained, it, it makes complete sense for those niche uh, families or situations. Again, if you're 25 years old, you haven't seen a doctor, you don't really need to see a doctor, it, it, it may not be something for you. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, and so, it's it's definitely a niche uh, service. Uh, but for those that need it, and those have those scenarios, and there are quite a few families that are in those type of scenarios, whether it's Alzheimer's or other uh, debilitating chronic conditions. Um, those are the those are the ones that I think we can help the most. Okay. Now, have you um, run across any big surprises, or want to share with us maybe a? Um, a compliment that you got from a client that that just kind of set you back um, and said, "Wow, this this is this is good. We're doing we're doing good here." Well, um, let's see. You know, I I think there was one instance uh, that comes to mind where we um, had a patient that had fallen. We thought she had broken her hip, and um, uh, she didn't want to go to the emergency room. She just wanted to kind of be at home. But we convinced her finally to go to the emergency room. We weren't even sure if the hip was broken. The family was in uh, their their son and son and, and daughter-in-law with their family were the only ones that uh, were around here in Chicago, and they had gone on vacation to Aruba. And uh, all I knew is that they had gone to Aruba, and so. We went to the ER, we met them in the ER, and sure enough, the hip was broken, uh, and the fracture was such that it needed surgery the next day. So the orthopedic surgeon came in, we we facilitated and got the pre-op clearance, we did the history and physical exam, uh, set her all up for for, um, uh, hip surgery, and... um, I was I was able to uh, track down the son in Aruba after making multiple different calls. Uh, Weather-related issues came up because the phone wasn't working at the hotel down there. But we were we managed to finally get a hold of them, and you know they they made it back two days later. So she was already post-op day one. But but just the simple fact that we were able to communicate with them that this has happened and uh, that your your mother is going to go through surgery because she needs it uh, relatively soon, um, I got one of the biggest uh, compliments and, and a hug at the end of that when they came back because uh, they wanted to know that this had occurred, uh, even though they weren't able to make it back that particular particular day. Um, so that comes to mind, and, and the reason that comes to mind is that that recently happened maybe uh, a couple of months back. Well, and to know someone's caring for your loved one that you've got a relationship with and that you trust versus just getting them thrown into the emergency room where it can be kind of a crapshoot um, and knowing that, you know, that alone has got to be comforting to, the, the you know, your patient. Um, just to have that consistency, um, I think that's got to be huge. Absolutely huge. Well, our, our motto, uh, I think, uh, Lori, is 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 to really kind of try to treat everyone like you would treat your mother and father. 
So what would I do? What extra mile would I take to to go and treat my mother and father? If my if my mother broke her hip and she went to the ER, I sure as heck would go to the ER and meet her there or at least take her there. So why mm-hmm. wouldn't I do that for my patients? And so if I okay. if I stick with that game plan or motto, I, I don't think I can go wrong. Great. I, I agree. I agree. Can you tell people how they can get a hold of you, Dr. Patel? And um and then also, um maybe do you have any plans for expansion? Is that something that you're open to at all or we we have talked about expansions. We've looked at uh various different markets including New York, Miami and um uh Scottsdale, Arizona. So there is uh, a little bit of talk about uh, increasing the awareness of the brand and what we're uh, trying to accomplish here. Uh, the, the key element to making this work, though, is getting the right type of physician with the right practice personality uh, that allows that because some doctors will just not fit in the in the mode of being wanting to spend two, three hours or coming in in the morning and spending time, that much time with a patient um it's really the success of this possible expansion will have to be dealt with finding that right uh, fit of physicians so okay. we are we are we are uh talking about that because it's been so successful here um that we have no reason not to try to scale it or duplicate it in other uh, appropriate uh markets but we're very cautious because we don't want to scale it and ruin any type of quality of care you know, in any place so we're taking baby steps uh, in that type of thought process. The, the idea is not to become uh, a huge entity. The idea is to really service those um, as best as we can, whether we stay small with just 200 patients in the Chicago area or whether we expand it to other markets. The quality has to remain the same. The best way to contact us, uh, our phone number, uh, uh, or uh, taking information, uh, a lot of people look at our website uh, and then give us a call. The website is uh, fairly informative, um, but there's no there's uh, beyond that. We we spend a lot of time when people sign on uh, because they want to know what can we tailor to fit their needs, and every family is unique and different. So, the website is a good starting point, but it always requires uh, a good, healthy discussion with those involved and myself uh, to kind of determine what the right fit is going to be and and what the exact needs of the family. Uh, that want to take care of their loved one is going to uh, entail. Okay, and the the website is hansamedicalgroup.com, and that's H-A-N-S-A-M-E-D-I-C-A-L, and then group has an E on the end of it, so G-R-O-U-P-E.com. And um, and then phone number. Which one would you like them to have? Um, uh, our, our main number that is on all the time uh, is eight four seven nine two zero zero nine zero two. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Patel. It was very interesting, and it sounds like an absolutely fantastic service. And I, I'm just honored to have you on the show with us today. So. Um, you go enjoy your day and take care of your patients. And um, and we're going to go ahead and proceed here with our next guest. But, um, again, thank you so much for what you and, and um, Hansa Medical Group are doing. Thank you, Lori. Thank you for having me on the show. Great. Have a great day. Um, take care. Next guest is take care, too, too. 
Our, our next guest is Christine Phillips, and she is with the American Academy of Neurology. And their mission is to promote the highest quality um, patient-centered neurologic, uh, neurolog- I can't talk today, neurologic care um, and enhance member um, care satisfaction. Christine has been with the American Academy of Neurology since 1986, and during her tenure, um, Ms. Phelps has um, served as Director of Education, Director of Membership and Communications and Marketing, Director of Education Science and Meeting Services, and in 2007, um, Christine was appointed Deputy Executive Director of the American Academy of Neurology um, and the American Academy um, and the NNA Foundation as well, which supports education and research uh, in neurology. Um, In this expanded role, she has um, the oversight of all the research and the education and development of activities of the AAN and the AAN Foundation. And as an expert in the medical conference planning, um, with over 13 years of experience overseeing um, their annual meeting. Um, Ms. Phelps has served on the customer advisory boards for the cities of Dallas, uh, Philadelphia, and is currently serves um, on the customer advisory boards for Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and the state of Hawaii. And I'm very excited to to have Christine with us today to talk about the, the film festival. So, Christine, how are you doing today? I'm great, Lori. Thank you so much for asking me to be on the show. Well, you know, I just I, I love this whole concept of the film festival, and I wanted to be able to help raise awareness. Um, I mean, that's my goal: raise awareness and, and work collaboratively um, to spread the word. Because I just, uh, to me, that's a good policy to have: is um, working together. So, if you wouldn't mind sharing with people, what actually is the Neuro Film Festival all about, and you know, how did it get started? Well, um, I love the cooperative spirit that you're talking about because that's actually how everything does get started. And this was kind of a brainchild of us that we were going to have our annual meeting in Toronto, and we wanted to do something that would raise awareness for research in curing brain disease and at the same time offer something unique for our meeting. And with Toronto being the home of the Toronto Film Festival, We thought, what a great idea to start something that has now become a tradition. The film festival is something that the foundation created to raise awareness about the need to raise money for research. And our our vision is to cure brain disease in the 21st century. And as you know, brain disease include things like Alzheimer's, stroke, Parkinson's, and multiple sclerosis. Um, So what this is, is it's a contest in which the public can submit a video about neurologic disease that has touched them or a family member or a friend or just of interest to people in the community. Um, I just want to get some of the specifics out. The deadline for our 2012 Neurofilm Festival is January 31, 2012, and you can get a lot of information as well as look at the films submitted on www.neurofilmfestival.com 
And we also hope that people are willing to put their creative energy together to submit a short video. Um, in 2000, we did this started in 2010. We had a lot of buzz about it. It's taken off. People have taken the idea and are doing it with their associations as well. And in 2011, we had more than 100 films submitted. And on YouTube, we had 100,000 people view these videos, which is so great because it allows us to get, as you said, the message out there and the need for us to, as we put in every one of our videos, let's put our brain together, together to support brain research. So it's really important to all of us. It, it definitely is. And, you know, it's fun to go out there and look at the videos and hear the stories and see what people are doing. And, and some people, you know, put a ton of work into these and get real creative and others just sit down and chat. And there's no right or wrong. It's just about getting it done and being involved. Um, yeah, and, and so I think I, we, I just, we have videos that run the gamut. We have amateurs up to more professional, and we're open to all of that. I mean, it is great to see the stories. I think some of them are are compelling. Some of them are happy. Some of them offer hope for people moving forward in how, how they live with neurologic illness. Yeah, it's it's very educational and and it's fun and it's a it's an easy way to get educated um, in terms of how people are are coping and and what the needs are, what they're you know, what they're looking for in terms of um, of help. And then, of course, um, I'm assuming raising dollars for, for the research as well. Um, how do people go about submitting a video? Well, the again, I'm going to give the website at www.neurofilmfestival.com, and we have a, an instructional video on it as well. But the video should be no more than five minutes in length, and all of the films are required at some point to include the phrase, let's put our brains together to support brain research. And then what happens is the video is submitted for the film festival. People vote online, so we have a fan favorite. But we also have a panel of physicians and lay people, and actually some of the filmmakers who have participated in the past this year are going to serve on the jury. So it is a selected group that picks the winners, but we have people voting as of February 8th, so anybody can vote for all of the films that we have online. Wonderful. Well, that is great. And um, is it, um, you know, when they submit a video, is it is it as easy as, like, downloading onto, like, a YouTube channel where you just click and pick it up and, and go? Well, yeah, that's the great part of it. And we did utilize YouTube to make this happen in a short amount of time. So we found it to be very effective. And that's all they need to do is uh, do what they do when they submit a, a YouTube video. Okay. And that, I mean, I can do that. So that, that's really <laughs> simple. <laughs> that's really that's simple good. to do. So I definitely encourage people to try that. Plus, you know, to set up a YouTube channel is free. So it doesn't cost you anything but a little bit of time, and it really is quite simple to do. And nowadays with, you know, phones and flip cameras, you know, it doesn't have to cost you a lot of, a lot of money to create these things either. So, again, we just really encourage people to, um, you know, step into the circle and, and make a difference. Um, and, and get involved because that it really is the only way we are going to find a cure 
um, not only, you know, for the diseases as a whole, but um, to cure in what I call our care culture in general is to share our stories and learn from one another on a social um, level and how this impacts us. And this is a prime opportunity to be able to do that. Are there prizes for the winners? Um, yes, there are. Uh, there's a bit of an incentive. There's a grand prize of which the grand prize winner receives $1,000. And then we actually fly them on April 22nd to our film festival in New Orleans. It's in conjunction with our annual meeting. Um, so it's an all-expense uh, round-trip ticket um, for them to attend the meeting and receive their prize. Then we have a runner-up prize, and they receive $500 in the same trip um, to New Orleans. And then we do have a fan favorite. That person wouldn't come to the meeting but does receive a certificate from us, and that's based on voting on YouTube. Oh, fun. Those are all very nice prizes. Boy, I'd love to go to New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, well, submit a video you're open to win, so, so do yeah, it. But the, the film festival, I mean, I I just think that that would just be uh, just a fun, fun time. Um, now, to find out more about the film festival, we've given out the website again, and we'll do that one more time at the end. Can you tell us a little bit more, though, about the American Academy of Neurology Foundation, and, and what's that all about? Well, the American Academy of Neurology Foundation is one of the world's largest not-for-profits dedicated to supporting vital research in finding cures for brain disease. I'm not sure if this has been mentioned on your show, but one in six people in the United States alone is affected by uh, neurologic disorders. And I always say that families are actually affected by multiple neurologic disorders through their lifetime. The foundation is dedicated to raising money for research. Thus far in our 20-year history, we've raised $16 million to support research, and we have a great track record. And our physicians say we're on the cusp of really great breakthroughs. And, of course, we all know to get there, we need money, and we need money for research, and we need to be able to find the best and the brightest who can get us there. And I think that's what the foundation is devoted to, finding that money to support the best and the brightest research out there. Well, that's exciting. That's very exciting. Um, yeah, I've been on this journey with, with memory loss with my mom for 30 years, and I think so many times people don't understand the impact of some of the diseases that are out there. Um, sometimes people just assume that it's a short thing and, and nothing to be dealt with. And, you know, when I look at, at my mom with, with dementia, and granted she wasn't diagnosed with Alzheimer's early on, but um, this, is, this is a lifestyle change, you know, and this, is, this isn't something that's going away. And I think with more early diagnosis in all diseases, we're going to be um, seeing the effects of how this impacts us um, not only as families, but on a, on a social, economical level as well. And it's something that we have to learn to live with um, until cures are found. And, it, you know, it, it's it's very important um, to work together and to, to be knowledgeable and get educated on what avenues are, are out there and available to help us. So I really appreciate you coming on the show 
um, and sharing um, the film festival with us. I'm going to have you give out that um, the .com one more time for people um, on how they would get involved. And I know that you are on a tight schedule and squeeze this in, and I want to be respectful of your time there. So um, if you wouldn't mind sharing that website one more time with us, Christine. Sure. It's www.neurofilmfestival.com. And, Lori, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to share the information of the foundation with you and your listeners. I really I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, well, thank you for taking the time out of your day to squeeze us into your schedule. I know you're very busy, and I, I look forward to uh, the results of the film festival, and I hope that lots of our listeners will participate in that. So well, thank you again. Great. I hope so, have, too. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Well, I want to thank all of our listeners today um, for partaking in the show. And um, hopefully you've learned uh, a, a little bit of something, both regarding the concierge program and the film festival. Again, I would highly encourage people to get involved in that. It's just kind of a fun thing that people can do. If you enjoyed the show today, we would appreciate uh, you helping us spread the word about the show by liking us or tweeting us. Um, all those buttons are on our homepage there. And that just that just helps us spread the word again. Also, if any of you might think that you would make a good guest on the show, please reach out and contact me because I'm always looking for, for new guests. And we do also interview people with uh, early dementia on, on the show. It's not necessarily uh, has to be Alzheimer's specific. Um, could be frontal lobe. We've had all different types on, as well as family and professional caregivers. So um, please keep that in mind. If you are at a state in your life where you're ready to stand up and be heard and share your story, because there are many people that need to hear your story and how things have affected you and what you're doing um, to make a difference. Um, I want to last thank again our guest, Christine Phillips with the American Academy of Neurology and Dr. Patel with Hansen Medical Group. Um, We're wonderful to have on the show today. Our next show will be on Friday the 13th. And I'm really excited about this show because I'm going to have a woman on by the name of Kathy Ritchie. And Kathy's mom has dementia. And she has a blog, and I'll, I'll never forget the first blog post that I had um, read of hers. And her blog is called My Demented Mom. And Kathy really struggled um, with this disease and how it impacted her and her life. And, you know, she still does. And she speaks openly and honestly about it. And I think that that is a, a face that we need to talk about in terms of the struggles when dementia occurs. Um, on the 24th of January, I'm going to have Mark Wartman um, back on from Alzheimer's Disease International. We just decided we had a difficult time with technology with him being in London with Skype, and so we're going to redo that show on the 24th. And then on February 3rd, um, we're going to be honored to have Barry Greenberg with us, who is with Toronto's Dementia Research Alliance um, 
program. And then Chris Wynn, who is the producer of Forgetful Not Forgotten, which is a film about dementia with his dad. Um, and then on February 16th, I have Carrie uh, Lusick, uh, who is an author. And she's going to talk about the life lessons of a baker's dozen. And she's written a book about her journey with her mother. So we have lots of fun shows coming up. I hope you can join us. Again, if you can't join us live, everything is recorded and archived. And you can, again, always share uh, those stories with others um, as needed. So as always, I just want to remind people to focus on the three simple things that I call your memory chip when you're dealing with someone with dementia. And that is, are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? And you can get your free memory chip just by going to my resource website, alzheimerspeaks.com. Thank you again for listening, and have a blessed day. And I want you to think ahead as you go ahead. And don't forget about entering the um, Neurological Film Fest. I think that that would be a lot of fun. Thanks again. Bye. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.